We welcome you to Bible study, and if you are our listening audience, we are happy to have you. And we are continuing with our study of Colossians, and we are at verse 18. 18. Now we have three verses here. What, what we call this is a table of duties. Many of the epistles, Paul's epistles, as he approaches the end of the book, he starts giving direction of how the Christian life is to play out uh, in everyday life. And so he gives three directives here in three verses. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, in these three verses, the verbs submit, love, and obey are all present imperatives. Now, what does that mean? That means it needs to be translated to really get the meaning, wives, keep on submitting to your husband or go about submitting to your husbands. Husbands, keep on loving your wives. Children, keep on obeying your parents. The implication is that these are ongoing actions. These are not one-time events. You don't love your wife once. <laughs> you don't submit to your husband once, okay? These are continuing actions. Now, I wanna spend some time on this today and especially husbands and wives submit and love. And you've got to remember that, remember in Colossians, there's talked about another letter that was sent to Laodicea. We believe that may be the book of Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians are very closely linked you will find some of the same things expressed. And Paul was writing these letters to the same area. And so the letter to Laodicea, if it is, Laodicea is about 40 miles from Ephesus. Ephesians picks up on these two verses and gives much more, fleshes it out much more. So this morning, I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to begin, we're going to read this beginning at verse 22, and you will see how the same sentences are used, but then he expands. So, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, 
and is himself its Savior. Now, so the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Okay? Now, the word submit is a problem for lots of people. I've had brides want that word. They wouldn't have this read at their wedding, and they wanted that word removed from the vows. Okay? But the word submit in the scriptures is different from the word submit in our culture and society. So let's talk about that. Initially, when we hear the word submit, there are several concepts come to our mind. Coercion, force, an inferior serving a superior. All those things come to mind when we hear the word submit. Now, how is the word submit used in the Bible? There are a couple of times it's used in that way. But then we come to when it's used of God. And so the prime example is, and Jesus submitted to his parents. To his parents. Were his parents superior to Jesus Christ? Did he submit to them out of coercion or force? No. You see, here the word is used in the sense that Jesus Christ submitted to his parents out of love for his heavenly father and love for his parents. It was a submission based on love. Didn't have anything to do with inferiority. Didn't have anything to do with force or coercion. If you think you had trouble raising your kids, imagine having a perfect child. And you're not. <laughs> but the fact then is submission is used totally different here. And if we apply that to this passage, and the passage is in Colossians, there is a responsibility here. You see, in a perfect world, 
you don't have to worry about order. In an imperfect world, you have to have order. God had to set up order when sin came into the world. Now, so, before we go on about submission, we have to look at the husband's responsibilities. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband's responsibility is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That is a tall order. That is a tall order. In other words, your wife, you do only that which is best for her. You love her and her needs come before yours. You love her even enough to give your life for her if you have to. Did you know that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say wives love your husbands? Not in there. It's husbands love your wives. Now, why is that? If a husband will love his wife as Christ loved the church, putting her needs first. She knows he will do nothing to harm her. He will mainly make decisions for her good, and he's even willing to die for her. If a husband loves a wife like that, she'll love him back. Dollars too. She'll love him back, and she will submit to him as Jesus submitted to his parents out of love. It doesn't imply that the woman is inferior. It doesn't imply that she's doing it out of force or coercion. It is a relationship of love. Now, the husband is to be the head of the household, but especially the spiritual head of the household. If you look at the statistics, if a mother takes her children to church and dad doesn't go, there's about a 25% chance the children will keep going to church when they get older. If the children see mom and dad taking them to church, that jumps to about 75%. The father needs to be the spiritual head of the household. Christ is the spiritual head of the church. He saved us. Husbands can't save their wives, but the primary focus of the husband 
is to be to help his wife stay connected with Christ so she inherits eternal life. So his children inherit eternal life. So this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about that's why he used these these burden tenses. Keep on loving your wife. Wives keep on submitting to your husband. Husbands have come to me seeking help. Pastor, my wife is just not submissive. And I don't know what they want me to say. Well, you're gonna what are you gonna do to her? The answer is and it startles them. Love her more. Love her more. Love her more. So this is at the basis of these two short verses at the end of chapter 3. It's easy for us just to skip over them. But the fact is that there's a lot to be said about these, the relationship between husband and wife. And it's to be at the basis of it is the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. That's, that's the basis of the marital relationship. So, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting or as is appropriate in the Lord. The church doesn't submit to Christ because it has to. It submits to Christ because the church sees what Christ has done for them. It's a love relationship. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay? Do not be harsh with them. Then children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay? So now he's dealing with children. Okay? The commandment says, honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. If you do what your parents tell you, you'll probably live longer. Pure <laughs> and simple. Easy. Then it goes on. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged or lose heart. Lose heart. Do not provoke them so they don't lose their energetic spirits. Okay? So these are four directives to family, okay? But there's a lot behind these words, okay? So it's easy just to read these four verses quickly and move on. But they are worthy of discussion because they form the basis of God's order for the family unit. 
God's order for the family unit. All right, let me stop there and ask if there are any questions. Yes, Joan. Okay, she says, give us some examples of provoking your children. I think it's a matter of being so hard on them. They can't be people. They can't live. They can't have fun. They feel beaten down. Okay. Yes. Harass your children. Okay. Okay. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't do chores. doesn't mean that they shouldn't clean their rooms. You know, there's, there's three ways to motivate a child. Uh, get in there and clean your room or I'm going to kill you. That's brute force. Number two, you go in and clean your room and you can go to the movies. That's reward. Here's the radical gospel. Your child comes to you and says, I love you so much, not my clean my room. Ah, that's a little different. Okay. That's the radical gospel. Okay. And that's the kind of motivation we ought to have. Okay. So, but, but you get my point. You just, you know, there are certain children, you can look at them. They're just not happy. They do anything, and they get jumped on. I think that's what it's talking about there. All right. Now that switches at verse 22. Bond servants, or servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, there's always been a wide debate about slavery. And we need to talk about that for a few minutes. Because when we read of slavery in the Bible, our tendency is immediately to think in terms of slavery as we know it in our nation of blacks from Africa. There is no doubt that was wrong. Okay? We're not going there. But... Slavery in the Bible was an entirely different thing. In the city of Rome, it is estimated that 75% of the people were considered slaves. First thing about biblical mention of slavery and servanthood, it applied not just to any one race. As far as the Roman citizens were concerned, the French and the English were barbarians and should be put into slavery. And they were white. So 
Slavery in the Bible has absolutely nothing to do with race. Okay? Second thing. Slavery in the scriptures does not have anything to do with education. You see, in this country, slaves were denied education. You could be highly educated and be a slave. Ancient records talk about how teachers were slaves. Artists were slaves. There's even reports of doctors being slaves. They were, could be highly educated people of all races. In other words, slavery, it's very hard, if not simply inaccurate, to relate what we think about slavery that went on in our country with the slavery that's being talked about here. In most cases, slaves were treated well. The best analysis is probably this. At that time, the relationship between slaves and citizens would have been very much like employer-employee. Employer-employee. Now, was there abuse? There is any time. Was there masters that abused their slaves? Sure, certainly. But in most cases, it was a different relationship than what we understand. Further, Paul brings a new relationship to the master and the slave because they're both, they're both believers in Christ. So they may be bondservants and masters, but they're both Christian brothers and sisters. That places a different ethics as the way you treat a fellow Christian, even if he is your servant. So with that in mind, let's read it again. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. And the word there is literally eye, eye, E-Y-E, serve. Okay? It's a, it's a word that's put together. I serve, people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Okay, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
And and when you look at that, we'll we'll get to a, a, a good definition of sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That phrase heartily is actually work from the soul. In other words, it's not to be outward service, it's to be from the heart. And now we're really emphasizing the Christian part of this because anybody can do something outwardly, but we want it to flow from the heart where the Spirit works in us. So in other words, the servants, okay, the bond servants, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In other words, when you serve others, serve from the heart, not from outward, I have to. And the whole thing that's being emphasized here is that Christ served us. The life of the Christian is a life of service. Okay? So serve as you're serving the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now he's talking about whether you're a master or a servant, the reward is going to be the same, eternal life. Now that completely reshapes the relationship between masters and servants when they are fellow Christian. When they are fellow Christians, there's an entirely new context. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay? For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. God is not going to show any partiality here. Okay? No partiality. Then, the first verse of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, when the master had these servants, he should think about how he's treating them because he has a master in heaven. So, this is why lots and lots of slaves in the Roman Empire were very well treated lived good lives, productive lives, in all kinds of vocations. 
as I said before, there might have been some abuse, but probably not near as much as we saw here. So it was a different time and a different relationship between masters and servants. Yes, Steve. Many times they were captured enemies. That is correct. So when the Roman Empire would overrun a country, they would take captives. But as Steve said, they were of all vocations. They had gifts that they could use and their masters would use them in those areas. Again, we, as we talked about, there was no fear then of educating servants. Education was good. They would serve you better. Whereas what we saw in this country is they denied them education and were afraid to educate them lest they would turn on their masters. So it was entirely different. Entirely different. Yes. What? Philemon and the runaways. Yes. If you read the book of Philemon, it is about a runaway slave who is in prison with Paul. And Paul is actually writing to his master, Philemon, so he would take back his servant, Onesimus. And that's what the book's about. So it's, as I say, it was a different kind of relationship than we think of when we hear the term servant or slavery. Totally different in the world. Now, today, are we as Christians for slavery? No. Okay. But the fact is that at this time, it was totally different. Yes. Able to what? I don't know that. I don't know that. Now, they could never become a Roman citizen. I think you could pay and become a Roman citizen. But, and, and notice the term is used here, bond servant. You go back in the Old Testament, it talks about the difference between a servant and a bond servant. A bond servant is one who is with you, with their master, by choice. According to the Jewish law, you could only keep a slave so long, and you had to free them. I think it was seven years. In the seventh year, they had to go free. But in the seventh year, if they were offered their freedom, and they said, no, I want to stay here, then they were called a bond servant. And they would take an awl and pierce their ear with an awl to 
mark them as a servant who wanted to stay. And then they would stay there, okay, with that master. But that is what a bond servant is compared to just a servant, okay? So they're there by choice, okay? By choice. All right, other things. Well, when Joseph went to Egypt, he was in prison, but he was Potiphar's servant, worked in his house, okay? Worked in his house. Yeah, and see, he was a Hebrew, and yet he was made the second most powerful man in Egypt. So there's an example of a servant going all the way to the top. Okay, all the way to the top. So as I say, a very different kind of relationship. Yes. Neither slave nor free, all in all Christ. All are in Christ. That's right. In Christ, that's why Paul is erasing any thought of superior and inferior here because they're both redeemed by Jesus Christ. They're both sinful human beings and they are both forgiven. Okay? Both forgiven, both children of God, both going to inherit eternal life when they were both converted Christians. Anything else? So there's a whole lot jam-packed in those few verses. In those few verses. All right. Now we come to the point where he's giving final instructions and final greetings to the church in Colossae. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Okay. So they are to be steadfast, and we talked about that. Somebody said, what, what does it mean when it says pray constantly? It means not that you're praying constantly, but that you're ready to pray any moment. You have a prayerful spirit. As you go through your day, there are times you just say about this or that or somebody that comes to mind. You just, you're ready to pray at any time. Yeah. Well, that's part of it indeed. When you're a Christian, one of the things, let, let me ask you this. What percentage of your prayers are for others and what percentage of your prayers are for you? Usually it's for us. But if you think about prayer, 
let, let me let me put it another way. In the Lord's Prayer, there are seven petitions. Only one is about the physical, material things. The other six are all about spiritual things. So think about that and and think about praying for others, okay? For others as well as for that which concerns you. Now, it says with thanksgiving. The implication here, and also in the book of Philippians, is you thank God for the answers before he gives them. You thank God for the answers before he gives them. Which is truly leaving it in his hands. You do, Lord, what? is best and thank you for doing that thank you for doing that so be watchful in it with thanksgiving at the same time pray also for us that god may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of christ on account of which I am in prison, all right? I am in prison. So we think this was during his time in prison in Rome. But he wants them to pray for him. Notice it doesn't uh, apply. It's, he's not asking them to pray for him. He's asking them to pray that the gospel may be proclaimed in other places through him so that God will open doors so the gospel of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed. That is Paul's highest wish. That's his purpose. He wants to pray. And it says, on account of which I am in prison. He is in prison because he is proclaiming Jesus Christ. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So he wants the opportunity to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants them to pray or him. So you'd think he'd pray, I expect you to pray, get me out of here. I'm in prison. Get me out of here. His prayer is that doors will be opened so he can proclaim the gospel. Doors will be opened so we can, he can proclaim the gospel. All right. I think we're going to stop there because next there's some other thoughts here and I don't want to get into that today. All right, any final questions, comments? Well, you know, Paul says he's not eloquent in, in Corinthians, that he's not a great speaker, but he, he wants to be clear. Moses tried that. Moses said, I don't want the job of bringing the people out of Egypt because I can't talk. 
And so that's why Aaron became the spokesman. Okay. Moses had other excuses, but God got a little ticked off about that and said, you're doing it. So next week we will finish Colossians. We're still pondering what to do next. So we'll have some guests by next week. Okay. So, but next week we will finish Colossians. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.